This morning, our sermon text comes from Galatians chapter 3, verses 1 through 18. These are the words of God. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you that you should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ was clearly portrayed among you as crucified? This only I want to learn from you. Did you receive the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? Verse 6, just as Abraham believed God, and it was accounted to him for righteousness, therefore know that only those who are of faith are sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel to Abraham beforehand, saying, in you all the nations shall be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed with believing Abraham. Verse 15, brethren, I speak in the manner of men, though it is only a man's covenant, yet if it is confirmed, no one annuls or adds to it. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He does not say, and to seeds, as of many, but as of one, and to your seed, who was Christ. And this I say, that the law, which was 430 years later, cannot annul the covenant that was confirmed before by God in Christ, that it should make the promise of no effect. For if the inheritance is of the law, it is no longer of promise, but God gave it to Abraham by promise. Our gracious Heavenly Father, please open your word to us this morning and feed us, enrich us, show us your glory, your beauty, the greatness of your love and your salvation and your power toward us in Christ and by the Holy Spirit, For we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we have paused uh, for a few sermons in our progress in the book of Genesis to consider the ramifications of what we have learned thus far, especially with regard to God's dealings with Abraham. Because as we see in our text in Galatians 3, the New Testament again and again goes back to the Old Testament and especially to God's dealings with Abraham to teach us the gospel and the nature of saving faith, but also to teach us about the various temptations and pitfalls which we face, even as members of God's covenant, to sometimes miss the point and miss out on the blessing. Now that's what the Galatian disciples were in danger of. And notice how Paul corrects them by taking them back to Abraham. What God revealed to Abraham, what Abraham believed, the covenant that was made with Abraham, and how they need to walk in the footsteps of Abraham's faith if they want to inherit the blessing. And you notice through all of this how Paul is making a direct connection between the saving faith of Abraham on the one hand and our saving faith on the other. Between what Abraham believed on the one hand and what we believe on the other. Now this is something that few modern Christians really grasp. And so I want to take that journey today where Paul is pointing us. Now, we don't have time for a full recapitulation of God's dealings with Abraham. I want to focus in instead on the episode that Paul and the other apostles allude to more than any other 
and that is Genesis chapter 15. After all, that is where Abraham believes God, and God counts it to him as righteousness. And that is also where God first makes the covenant with Abraham. So chapter 15 of Genesis opens with the word of the Lord coming unto Abraham in a vision, verse 1. And let me point out that in Genesis 15, while I normally use the New King James uh, from the pulpit, I'm going to be using the Old King James in Genesis 15 because it tracks the original Hebrew a little closer and more faithfully. So the first thing we need to realize here is that it is Christ pre-incarnate, that is, God the Son, before he became the God-man in the person of Jesus, who was appearing to Abraham. Now, Jesus himself tells us this, John 8, verse 56. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. Then the Jews said to him, you are not yet 50 years old. And have you seen Abraham? You have to remember, Abraham lived almost 2,000 years before Christ's first advent. And so the Jews are saying, you're not even 50 years old, and you're telling us you've seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, I am is the name of God. It translates the Hebrew Yahweh or Jehovah. And what it is really saying, what God is saying in that name, what Christ is saying in that name is I am the never-changing one. I am the eternal, omnipotent, all-knowing one. I am the ever-faithful, never-failing, promise-making, promise-keeping God. That's who I am. Now, this idea of Jesus being the one meeting with Abraham here, this is consistent with other patterns or other passages in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 12, starting at verse 22, tells us that it was Christ pre-incarnate that spoke to Moses on top of Mount Sinai. 1 Corinthians chapter 10 verse 4 tells us that it was Christ pre-incarnate that led Israel through the desert and gave them water from the rock and manna from heaven. The pattern we see when we connect all this up is that most any time God appears and speaks to someone in the Old Testament, it is God the Son. It is the pre-incarnate Christ. After all, God the Son is the perfect word of the Father. He is the perfect expression of the Father. He perfectly reveals the Father's glory, the the, the Father's character, the Father's will. And so he is the perfect word or revelation of the Father. And you can see the New Testament picking up on these concepts and setting them forth. You can look particularly at John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, And then verse 14, where it talks about in the beginning was the word and the one and the word was God. All things were made through him and the word was made flesh. That's the way it describes the incarnation. Hebrews chapter one, verses one through three also. So that's what we're being told in Genesis 15, one, when it says the word of the Lord came to Abraham. Abraham. 
It also means that this is a prophetic passage that is quintessential prophetic language. You will see it over and over again in the Old Testament. When the second person, when Christ pre-incarnate is coming to a prophet and giving them something that they need to proclaim, you will see that phrase over and over. The word of the Lord came unto whatever the name of the prophet is. Abraham is the first person in Scripture that we actually literally have the word prophet used of him. And so the fact that Christ is coming to Abraham here and it says the word of the Lord came to him, it doesn't just mean it's Christ pre-incarnate and that Abraham is going to have new things revealed to him. It also means that these are things that Abraham is supposed to proclaim. And that's also what we're being told in our text in Galatians 3, verse 17, when it says that the covenant was confirmed before by God in Christ. Well, Genesis 15 is where the covenant was first confirmed. So Galatians itself is telling us that it was God in Christ who was here confirming this covenant. Further, Christ tells us in John 8, 56, that Abraham saw his day, saw Christ's day, and was glad. Now, the past tense used there in the Greek indicates that this is something that occurred during Abraham's lifetime. Through Christ's various appearances and revelations to Abraham, as well as the miracles and other significant events which Christ sovereignly brought about in Abraham's life, He enabled Abraham to see ahead of time the key features of Christ's first advent. That's what that's saying. His incarnation, his miraculous birth, his sacrificial atoning death, his resurrection, his coronation, his kingdom. I mean, we've already seen in Genesis chapter 21 how Christ pictured his own sacrifice, uh, his own uh, miraculous birth according to promise, through the miraculous birth of Isaac, according to promise. When we get to chapter 22, we're going to see how Christ will picture his sacrificial atoning death and his resurrection through Abraham offering up Isaac on the altar, then receiving him back at the last second, all pursuant to the command of Christ. I have to turn on Do Not Disturb on my iPad. (laughs) I'm getting all these notices. (laughs) All right. Now, Galatians chapter 3 tells us straight out that all Christ's promises to Abraham, while they had preliminary historical fulfillments, such as the birth of Isaac, such as the Israelites coming out of Egypt in the Exodus and then taking the land of Canaan. Yet all of the promises were ultimately about Jesus Christ. And they were fulfilled by Christ in his first advent and in his sending out of his disciples to conquer the nations with the gospel. That's what Galatians 3 verses 6 through 8 and verse 16 are talking about. So the question then is this, when was all this gospel content revealed to Abraham? 
Did he understand this from the beginning when God first called him and promised him all that through him all the nations would be blessed? The New Testament tells us straight out that that was talking about the gospel. The question is, did Abraham understand that? Because when we look back at a lot of the promises, they seem like, at least on the surface, to boil down to you're going to have a whole bunch of kids and you're going to get the land of Canaan. And it seems that that's all they're talking about on the surface. Well, I want to submit to you that Christ's revelation of the gospel of his first advent to Abraham began at least by Genesis chapter 15. It may well have begun before. I think you can make a strong argument for that. But I think there is a very powerful argument that if it did not begin before, it began big time in chapter 15. So in the first part of chapter 15, Christ's revelation to Abraham comes in response to a question regarding the promise of seed. Verse 3, Behold to me thou hast given no seed, and lo, one born in my house is mine heir. If he doesn't have any children, uh, his, his house, his wealth, his possessions will be inherited by Eliezer of Damascus, Abraham's faithful steward and, ser- and servant, because he doesn't have any children. And you have to remember that Abraham was already 75 years old when he first left Haran. Now several years have gone by. He is still childless. Sarah has been barren her whole life, and neither he nor she are getting any younger. And so Abram here is asking respectfully, that's obvious from the Hebrew, it's a respectful request. He's seeking understanding and he's seeking assurance. So Christ answers him in verse 5, And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto them, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, on the surface, it seems like Christ is just reiterating the earlier promise, which he made in chapter 13, verse 16, that he's going to have so many descendants that he's not going to be able to count them. Genesis 13, 16, I will make your seed as the dust of the earth, so that if a man could number the dust of the earth then your seed also could be numbered. That's the way it seems on the surface. But when we look more carefully, there are a number of powerful indications here that Christ is communicating something different to Abraham in chapter 15. And the first indication is that the Hebrew word for number in Genesis 15.5 is a completely different Hebrew word than the one used for number in Genesis 13:16. In Genesis 13, the word for number simply means to count up the total. And the point is, there's too many for you to count. And that's something that you could see in an instant simply by glancing at the dust of the earth. It's immediately apparent, too many to count. And that's the point of that particular promise. You're going to have too many descendants to count. But in Genesis 15:5, the word translated number does not mean count up the total. It means set in order and put it together and declare it. 
It's the same Hebrew word that's used in Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare, that's the word, the heavens declare the glory of God. It's the same word that's used in Psalm 48, verse 12. Walk about Zion, go all around her, count, that's the word, count her towers, mark well her bulwarks, consider her palaces that you may tell, that's the same word again, that you may declare it to the generations falling. It's not saying count up the total number of the towers of Zion so you can report the total number. It's saying study carefully everything about Jerusalem, the towers, the bulwarks, the palaces. Take it all in, understand it so that you can proclaim it, its glory, its beauty, its power to the generation to come. And so this word appears in Genesis 15:5 two different times. The first time it's translated tell, the second time it's translated number. Tell the stars, declare the stars, preach the stars, if thou be able to number them, if thou be able to set them in order. Well, the question is, It's like some story is in the stars. What story do the stars tell? Well, let's look at Romans chapter 10, starting at verse 9. Here Paul is talking about the gospel and the importance of the gospel going out to the world. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes unto righteousness, And with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Now, read this first part so that you can see that is absolutely clear. Paul is talking about the gospel here. Not talking about general revelation pointing to a creator. He's talking about the gospel of Christ, which we believe for salvation. Now he's going to talk about the importance of sending out preachers to carry this gospel to all nations. Verse 14. How then shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Now notice here he's talking about hearing of Christ. That's what he's talking about. How can they hear of Christ, the gospel of Christ, unless we send preachers out? But then he says something very, very strange in verse 18. He says that this is not the first time the gospel of Christ has gone out to the world. Verse 18, but I say, have they not heard? Heard what? Heard the gospel, the gospel of Christ. Have they not heard about Christ? We expect him to say, well, no, because we haven't sent the preachers out yet. But that's not what he says. Have they not heard? Yes, indeed. We need to send all the preachers out to carry the gospel out, but it's not to carry the gospel for the first time because the gospel has already gone out to all nations. And then he quotes Psalm 19, which is talking about the stars. Their sound has gone out to all the world and their words to the ends of the world. Look at Psalm 19, verse 1. The heavens declare, there's our word again for number, the heavens declare the glory of God. And the firmament shows his handiwork. Day unto day utter speech, night unto night reveals knowledge. 
There is no speech or language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone throughout, uh, through all the earth, and their words to the end of the world. Now, thus far, if we read this, we think this is just talking about general revelation, like Romans 1 is talking about. Like all creation testifies to the existence of a creator. But now we're about to see that he's talking about something more than general revelation. In them, he has set a tabernacle for the sun, which is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber and rejoices like a strong man to run its race. Its rising is from one end of heaven and its circuit to the other end, and there is nothing hidden from its heat. Now, this is typically just glossed over by modern scholars who assume, again, that Psalm 19 is only talking about general revelation pointing to the existence of a creator. And based on that assumption, modern scholars conclude that Paul in Romans chapter 10 is basically twisting Scripture. He's twisting Psalm 19. He's reading something into Psalm 19 that's not there. He's twisting it to make it support a proposition that it does not support. But I want to submit to you that that kind of modern scholarship is backwards, and it is, to be more pointed, unbelieving, because the Scriptures teach us that Paul was writing by the Holy Spirit. And so I would submit to you, he's not misinterpreting Psalm 19 at all. He's giving us the interpretive key to the whole psalm. Psalm 19 is not, as modern scholars suppose, contrasting two different types of revelation, general on the one hand and special on the other. It is comparing two different messengers of special revelation, the stars and the scriptures. And it's saying the same message is being conveyed by both. What does Psalm 19.4 mean when it refers to a tabernacle for the sun? Well, first of all, it's not just talking about stars. It's talking about constellations, which also the scriptures say that God created. Job 9, verse 9, for example, he made the bear, Orion, and the Pleiades. Job 38.32, can you bring out Maseroth in its season? Maseroth is the Hebrew word for Zodiac. Let me say very quickly that what we're talking about here today has absolutely nothing to do with modern astrology and the ideas that stars or constellations somehow control our personalities and our destinies has nothing to do with that. But Maseroth is the word for Zodiac. Or can you guide the great bear with its uh, its cubs? Isaiah 40 verse 26 Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created these things, who brings out their host by number. He calls them all by name. So this is talking specifically about the stars and constellations that fall along the annual path of the sun as it makes its way through the night sky. It makes a big ellipse or a big oval or circuit through the sky. And it's talking about those specific stars and constellations that go along that path constitute a tabernacle for the sun. 
And what you find along that path is the 12 major constellations of what we would call the zodiac. It's called Maseroth in Scripture, along with three or four minor constellations that go along with each one of the 12. Once again, this has nothing to do with modern astrology. So we can't go into more detail about this today. If you want to go into this on your own, the book that I would recommend that you get is called The Witness of the Stars. The Witness of the Stars. You can get it at Amazon. It's by E.W. Bullinger. He was an Anglican scholar and theologian who lived in the late 1800s. He goes into a lot of detail taken from ancient star charts from Babylon and Mesopotamia and Egypt and so forth. I will simply point out one of the things that he observes about those ancient star charts and the 12 major constellations of the Maseroth is that the names of those constellations are exactly the same in all of the ancient languages and civilizations, even though none of those constellations look like their name. In other words, what he's saying is, when we name a constellation, we name it something like the Big Dipper, because it looks like a dipper. Okay, None of the ancient... Uh, Zodiac constellations look like what they are. Taurus does not look like a bull. Aries does not look like a ram. Virgo does not look like a virgin. None of them look anything like what their names are. And yet in every one of the ancient civilizations, their name is the same. They have the same names, even though they don't look anything like what they are. So the question, the the main point here, though, is that Paul tells us in Romans chapter 10 that the gospel had already gone out. That's not the reason why we need to send preachers out because it's never gone out before. He's saying it's gone out before. We need to send it again. That's what God does. He keeps sending that gospel message. But the first time the gospel went to the world was at creation when God embedded it in the stars that lay along the annual path of the sun. So what is this message then that, that is told by this path of the sun through the constellations that Abraham is supposed to read? Well, we can infer from Jesus' statement in John 8:56 that Abraham saw his day and was glad that the message has to do with the person and work of Christ during his first advent. We can further infer from Psalm 19, verse 5, that it concerns the story of the bridegroom who is also the strong man. Remember, he says the son is like a bridegroom coming out of his chamber who rejoices as a strong man to run away. Well, the bridegroom and the strong man are two of the main biblical pictures of the Lord Jesus Christ. In John chapter 3, verse 28 through 31, John the Baptist portrays Jesus as the bridegroom who has come down from heaven. And of course, the church is called the bride of Christ, even as Israel was called the bride of God in the Old Testament. In Luke chapter 11, verses 20 through 22, Jesus portrays himself as the ultimate strong man, who is overpowering the evil strong man, Satan, and plundering his house. 
He's casting out demons. He is healing people. He is bringing people to faith. And he, he says that he is binding the strong man, Satan, and he is plundering his house. Furthermore, one of the main types of Christ in the Old Testament is one we typically overlook for a reason I'll talk about in just a second. But it's Samson, who is the ultimate bridegroom and strong man. The reason why we tend to miss Samson as a type of Christ is because of his relationship with the harlot, Delilah. And we just can't accept that such a morally flawed man could ever be a picture of Christ. But the thing is this. Let's not deal with Samson's morality in specific. Let's back up and let's look at the biblical typology involved with Samson. And ask yourself this, if you're going to picture the bride of Christ that he loved and that he came to save as a woman, what's she going to be? A harlot. That's us. That's the human race. We're not a clean bride. We committed spiritual adultery against God in the Garden of Eden and ever since. So if Samson is going to be a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ, who does Samson have to love? A harlot. Consider that like Christ, Samson was born miraculously by promise. You see, Samson's mother was barren, just like Sarah. She could not have any children. Samson was born miraculously according to God's promise. Consider also that like Christ, Samson was betrayed by the harlot whom he loved into the hands of Gentile pagans and given over to death. Isn't that exactly what happened to Jesus? Consider that like Christ, Samson, it was in Samson's death that he won the crucial victory over the enemies of God and God's people. Samson did a lot of mighty things during his life, but it was not until he had been captured and bound and his eyes put out. And they were having a great celebration in the temple of the god Dagon that Samson, in his death, was able to bring down the temple and destroy the power of the Philistines. Consider also that like Christ, it was Samson's great victory in his death that made possible then the victory of God's people going forward. In 1 Samuel chapter 7, you read of suddenly the Israelites having a great victory over the Philistines and throwing off their yoke when before they could never stand up to the Philistines. Well, what's different about 1 Samuel 7? Well, Samuel and Samson were born at right about the same time. Their ministries are going on at the same time. What makes possible suddenly this great victory by Israel over the Philistines is that Samson just took out five princes of the Philistines in his death. That's the difference. Now, in light of all of this, let's read Genesis 15, 5, and 6 again. Look now toward heaven and tell the stars, proclaim the stars, 
If thou be able to number them, set them in order. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. And he believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. This is the only time in the entire episode of Abraham that we're told specifically the condition of Abraham's heart and specifically the judgment of God toward Abraham. It kind of puts it all in a different light, doesn't it? This is why the New Testament tells us that Abraham is the father of all believers, not just in a kind of sort of way, like he believed he was going to have a bunch of kids and a bunch of land, but he didn't understand anything that we believe. No, there's a direct connection between the faith of Abraham, what he believed, and his faith, and ours. And that's why he's the father of all believers. Now, in the second part of Genesis 15, this is where God makes the covenant with Abraham. And it, too, comes in response to a question. This time, it's a question about the promise of land. Verse 8, Lord God, how shall I know that I will inherit it? When Abraham got to the land of Canaan, it was already occupied. It's not open. It's not available. Furthermore, it's occupied and ruled and well settled by pagans. And now it's still the same way. So Abraham is distressed. He cannot see how the promise is going to be fulfilled. So he's looking for understanding and assurance. And once again, Christ reveals gospel content to Abram that deepens his understanding and strengthens his assurance. And he does so all while making a covenant with Abram. That's what all the sacrificial animals are about in verses 9 and 10. You have a heifer, a goat, a ram, a turtle dove, a pigeon. What's significant about these animals is that they are all clean animals which can be used for sacrificial worship unto the Lord. That indicates that the death that is being pictured here is not a normal death. It is a sacrificial death on the one hand. In other words, it's a worship death. It's a death in worship to the Lord. Number two, it is a substitutionary death on behalf of the worshiper. It is an atoning death. So these animals, except for the birds, which are too small, are cut in two. So this is a bloody exercise that is going on. They're all cut in two. They're set opposite, the halves are, from one another, so there's a pathway down in between them. So you see, everything here is a picture of death. You have all these dead animals, all these carcasses laid out. You have vultures coming down on the animals and Abram having to drive the vultures away. That's a picture of death, and not only death, but curse and judgment. And then you have the sun going down. And then you have God causing a deep sleep to fall upon Abraham along with horror and terror and dread and great darkness descending upon him. And it's important to see here, this is all death, this is all judgment. And the other thing that's important to see here is that throughout this entire episode going forward, Abraham is completely incapacitated. He can do nothing but observe Now, in this context, Christ explains to Abraham that he personally 
is not going to ever possess the land of Canaan during his lifetime. It is going to be his seed some 400 years into the future. Abraham will be long dead. And even his seed will be captive to a hostile nation in a different land, talking about Egypt. God will have to rescue them and deliver them and judge their captors and bring them out of captivity and back to the land before Abraham's seed will ever possess it. And in this context, God makes a formal covenant with Abraham while renewing the promise, Unto thy seed have I given this land, from the river of Egypt unto the great river, the river Euphrates. Now we need to note a couple of interesting things about this land promise here. First of all, this land that God is promising here is not the same land that he promised earlier. He promised the land of Canaan earlier. This land is way bigger than the land of Canaan. This land goes all the way down to the river of Egypt. That's the Nile. That's right in the middle of Egypt, all the way up to the river Euphrates. That's way up where Abraham first came from, up there around Ur and Haran, way up there. At no time during Israel's history did Israel control and rule that region. There was a brief time under Solomon that Israel exercised some influence over a land that had some border, on, a small border on the Euphrates River, but at no time did Israel control this region and certainly not down to the Nile River in Canaan. So this is a way bigger land that's being promised here than what's been promised before. The question is, Why is this size and scope of the promised land being changed? Because Christ is indicating to Abraham that, yes, I'm going to give your descendants the land of Canaan. Yes, I'm. But that's a preliminary fulfillment of what I'm really talking about here. Because the land I'm really talking about is the land your seed, Jesus Christ, is going to inherit, which is the world. And that's why God is suddenly expanding the land here. In other words, the land of Canaan is a picture of a much bigger land. Look at what Paul says in Romans 4, verse 13. Listen, the promise that he would be heir of the world. Notice how the promise has been changed here. The heir, the, the, the promise that Abraham would be heir of the cosmos, that's the Greek word, the cosmos, was not to Abraham or to his seed through the law, but through the righteousness of faith. Now, how does Paul do that? How does he take a promise of the land of Canaan and say, well, Abraham was actually promised the cosmos? Because that's why, what he was promised, that's why. Because Canaan was always, yes, an actual land which they actually received, but that was a picture of the real land God is talking about that Christ is going to inherit, which is the whole world. Once again, you can see this gospel content being revealed to Abram, being opened to his eyes. So how is this covenant oath going to be fulfilled? That's what Christ demonstrates when he ratifies the covenant in verse 17. 
And it came to pass when the sun went down and it was dark, that behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a burning torch that passed between those pieces, talking about the animal pieces. Now, this smoking oven and burning torch is talking about the glory cloud by which God manifested his presence in the Old Testament. You will see it usually described as a pillar of cloud and fire or a whirlwind of cloud and fire. Exodus 13:21. The Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light. Ezekiel gets a close-up look at this whirlwind of fire, and when he looks inside, he sees that it's not fire at all. It's angels. It's angels that are radiating the glory of God as he manifests his presence. Anyway, that's what's being talked about here. So it is the presence of God, Christ manifesting his presence in the glory cloud, that proceeds down between the animal parts in this path of death. So what is Christ signifying by doing that? Well, according to typical modern scholarship, it is thought that God is basically saying, may I die like these animals if I fail to perform my promise? May I become like these animals dead if I fail to form my promise. Now, if you had two parties who were contracting parties who walked down between the animals together and they've got mutual exchange of promises to one another, that would be the meaning of walking down between the parts. May, may death come upon me if I don't keep my promise to you. And then the other person says, and may death come upon me if I don't keep my promise to you. But that's not the kind of covenant or contract that we have here. Here, Abraham doesn't go between the animal parts. Abraham is incapacitated. He can't move. It's very clear who's walking down this path, and it is Christ alone. What's being said here is Christ is not saying, may I become like these animals if I don't keep my promise. He says, I will become like these animals, and that's how I will keep my promise. I will walk the path of death. I will walk the path of sacrificial death and worship to the Father. I will walk the path of substitutionary death in atonement for my people. I will walk that path because nobody else can walk it. I will walk that path, and that is how I will make the covenant to come to pass. You see, under very long-standing law of covenants and contracts going back thousands and thousands of years, there's only two kinds of valid covenants or contracts. You still learn this today in the first year of law school. Only two kinds of valid covenants or contracts. One has two covenanting or contracting parties who are each making promises to one another. If only one is making promises, it's not a valid contract. You don't have a contract. Both of them have to be making promises in exchange for the other in order to have a valid contract. There is only one exception to this rule, and that is a last will and testament, a last will and covenant. Okay, 
That's the only exception. There you only have one person making a promise. That's the testator, the one uh, who is going to leave things through their will. The other party is the heir. All the heir does is receive. The heir makes no promises. The heir only receives. Here's the catch. A last will and testament covenant only becomes valid and effective upon the death of the one who made it. Okay? Look at Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. He, referring to Christ, is the mediator of the new covenant by means of death. Verse 16. For where there is a testament, there must also of necessity be the death of the testator. For a testament is in force after men are dead, since it has no power at all while the testator lives. That's what Christ is saying when he walks down that path by himself. He says, don't mistake what kind of a covenant this is. This is not a covenant where we're making mutual obligations to one another. You're not capable of that. This is a path only I can walk. And I can only put this covenant into effect through my death as a sacrificial death and as a substitutionary death. So you see, once again, folks, that's the gospel. I mean, that's the gospel. All of this stuff in Genesis 50 is just gospel from front to end that is being revealed to Abraham. And so when we say Abraham's a father of all believers... It doesn't just mean that kind of sort of. It means, really, he believed the same gospel that we do. Now, do we have details that he didn't have? Sure. But the fundamentals of the gospel were revealed very clearly to Abraham. So in conclusion, I want to ask three questions to bring all of this together. Who made this covenant with Abraham in Genesis 15? We've already answered this one. Christ pre-incarnate, God the Son before he became a man. So Christ pre-incarnate made the covenant with Abraham. Who fulfilled this covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 15? The answer is Christ incarnate, God the Son made flesh, God the God-man, God with us, Jesus Christ. Number three, who inherited the covenant? The answer is Christ resurrected and ascended. You see, Christ, Christ, Christ. Who made this covenant? Christ. Who fulfills this covenant? Christ. Who inherits this covenant? Christ. How do we inherit in union with Christ? How is this union? By faith. You see, Christ, Christ, Christ. I mean, we... We're like Abraham. We're incapacitated. There's nothing we can contribute to this, to salvation. Christ is Christ from start to finish. He inherits, we inherit in Him when we're made one with Him by the Spirit and by faith. And so you can really begin to see here John Piper's great phrase, God is the gospel. That's what this is saying. In Christ, God is giving us himself 
And by giving us himself, he is giving us everything else. That's why the very first thing that Christ says in Genesis 15 to Abraham is, I am your exceedingly great reward. What's your great reward, Abraham? I am your exceedingly great reward. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.